Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens, uh, especially if it's your first time here. I uh, want to really welcome you. Um, I can't believe we are already in December. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I have the privilege of, uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving uh, on staff here at the church. Um, I am in a great mood uh, this morning. The Lakers are back on track. It feels like uh, the Eagles are, are the best team in football still. And um, Korea is in the round of 16. So uh, this is, oh, man. <laughs> we don't get claps uh, at our church, but okay. I, I guess Korea will do it. Um, but um, yeah, if you were with us last week, we launched a new series uh, for Advent at our church. For those of you who don't know what Advent is, the word Advent uh, comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And the Advent season uh, begins four Sundays before Christmas and is meant to be a time of preparation uh, to celebrate the birth of Christ as well as look forward to his second coming. And this year, what we wanted to do um, in these four weeks uh, before Christmas uh, is to look at Jesus' birth from all the different characters uh, in the story, to get into their minds and to experience this earth-shattering moment in history through their eyes. And last week, uh, our sister Elizabeth kicked off our series by talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, who we often forget was really just an ordinary, scared teenage girl who's told that she's going to be carrying the Savior of the world in her womb. And we looked at what that moment says about God and what the implications are for us. Okay, And, and today we're going to kind of switch gears and do a, a full 180 from last week. And we're going to look actually at the villain of the Christmas story, King Herod. Okay, So I gave myself the villain. Um, I wanted that challenge. But uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 18. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but uh, if you're following along on your phone, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, the NIV. And um, as Elizabeth mentioned last week, you know, each week we're going to read the birth narrative um, that is probably very familiar to us um, in the Gospel of Matthew um, and possibly Luke as well. Um, and I want to really encourage us, especially when we're reading these familiar texts, to really, uh, really allow us to read with imagination, to kind of place ourselves um, in the story, to kind of not see this as something that you just learned in Sunday school that you know, but something that kind of we're re-seeing again um, as we look at this text together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. This is the reading of God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Amen. Let me say a quick prayer for us before we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our eyes and our ears um, to receive what you would have for us today. May we receive it. Um, yeah, may we cling to your grace and your mercy this morning. We thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, before we get started, let me give us a little bit of background on Herod. Uh, his life was well documented by the Roman historian Josephus. Uh, this guy was a terrifying, formidable leader. Okay? He had an unmatched thirst for power and control. And, and part of the reason for this is that he wasn't born a royal. Okay? And this is huge because uh, this means that um, he had to fight for everything he had. Okay? He always had a chip on his shoulder. Um, if you think it's hard to climb the social or political ladder in today's age, um, it was pretty much impossible in those days. So nothing was handed to Herod. Um, he had to manipulate people. He had to play the game. He had to align himself with the major players in the Roman Empire. Um, many of you probably remember the, the show House of Cards. It was kind of the first um, like show that people binged on Netflix. It brought out like a new culture in the way people watch television. Um, but if you remember that show, um, it was all about kind of exposing the dark underbelly of the American political system. And the story is about this ruthless politician, Frank Underwood, who basically works his way um, from being just a lowly uh, House majority whip and he kind of works his way through the system uh, to become the vice president and then ultimately to POTUS. And you see all the lies, the betrayal, the fear tactics that he has to use to get to the top. And one of the big lines that kind of, you know, was meant to frame the entire first season uh, was when Frank Underwood says, For those of us climbing to the top of the food chain, there can be no mercy. There is but one rule, hunt or be hunted hunt or be hunted. And this is his mantra throughout the show, and season two ends with Frank Underwood finally sitting in the Oval Office as president, and you would think that that's where the show would end, but really the drama is just getting started, right? Because you realize that 
um, just because he's president doesn't mean like he's achieved his goals. He's gotten to power, but now he has to keep the power, right? All of the fear and insecurity that was there when he was a lowly whip is still there after he becomes president. And this is pretty much the story of King Herod. He weaves his way through the system, and in the end, he declares himself king of the Jews, a position he holds for 37 years. And you would think once he'd reached his goal that he would kind of take his foot off the gas pedal, but he just intensifies. He starts to accelerate. He starts to get worse. He takes it to another level. He wanted to make sure everyone around him admired him and respected him. So he built these huge, elaborate structures in his name. He crushed anyone who even dared challenge his authority. He even murdered his own kids because he suspected they were vying for the throne. Okay, he's a ruthless guy. Um, Caesar Augustus, uh, who was a pretty scary ruler in his own right, he had this to say about Herod. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Okay, that should tell you everything you need to know about Herod. That's the kind of man Herod was. So much power and wealth, but he reeked of insecurity. And isn't that true? Right? Sometimes it's those in our lives who project themselves as the most strong, powerful, important people who end up becoming or who end up being the most insecure. It's the people in our lives who always feel the need to exert their dominance in every conversation. The people who downplay other people's accomplishments and are always elevating their own. So much of this is driven by fear and insecurity. And this is Herod to a T. And this is how bad it was, okay? Before his death... Herod literally had a mountain constructed in his name. So he called the mountain Herodium, which was supposed to be his burial site. And the goal was to get his burial site to be at the absolute highest point in the land. So even after he died, the entire country had to always look up at him. But not only that, he had this plan because he knew like deep down inside that nobody liked him. And he knew that no one was going to be really that sad when he died. So he had all the nobility in the country arrested. And then he had a plan and he said, um, I want them to be executed on the day I die so that he could guarantee there would be mourning on his funeral day. Okay, so that just tells you how delusional and insecure this man was. All the power and status and wealth in the world, but just a scared little boy on the inside. And so you can imagine how pissed off he is when these magi come to Jerusalem and ask him, where is the one born the king of the Jews? He's like, I'm the king of the Jews. Right? And they're like, where's the king of the Jews? You're asking the guy who self-proclaimed himself the king of the Jews where the king of the Jews is. It's a slap in the face. So this sends Herod into a panicked rage. He's got to figure out how to get rid of this baby, this weak helpless baby that's causing literal kingdoms to quake in fear. And I love the details in Matthew 2. King Herod tells the Magi, hey, can you go find this baby for me so I can go worship him too. So he's playing the game, right? It's, it, it's like the, guy, the people who comment on your Instagram, they're like, slay, you're killing it. You know, but behind your back, they're talking, right? They're gossiping, they're, they're ripping you apart behind your back, but you know, you gotta, you gotta play the game. You got to play the game in L.A. This is Herod, okay? Well, the contrast between Jesus' birth and Herod's death could not be more pronounced. Herod died desperately clawing to this empire he'd built, trying to get the entire world to appreciate and remember him forever. 
Jesus came into the world quietly. No fancy ceremony, surrounded by just his family in a stable with some barn animals. We're not even told exactly where the stable was. Why would God, the creator of the universe who could extinguish the sun with a breath, why would he come into the world like this? A helpless baby. You know, when I watch movies, I love, I live for how about them apples moments, right? I, li I love the moments when like someone gets mistreated or someone gets discounted or people doubt them. And then later on in the movie, like they get revenge or, you know, the people who bullied them finally see that, oh my goodness, this person is a savant or a genius or actually a billionaire. And I love those moments because I want the bullies to feel small. I want them to know what it's like. I want them to get what's coming for them. And I read this story of Jesus' birth, and it's really frustrating for me because this should totally be God's how about them apples moment. Right? I want God to come on the scene, and I want him in the story to just flick Herod's mountain and then build a mountain a hundred times bigger than Herod's. I want Herod to feel the full weight of his smallness. I want him to be put in his place and yet what we get is a baby in a feeding trough. And at first you're like, oh, that is so unsatisfying and so unfulfilling. But then when you think about it, you realize that's the biggest flex ever. It's God in a not so subtle way showing the world he has nothing to prove. He doesn't even need to play this game. And so he says, you know what? This is how I'm going to come into the world. I'm going to come into the world in the most powerless way. Naked, vulnerable, dependent. Right? And when I saw that again, I was like, you good, God. You're so good. Right? I remember back in Philly, um, I met a guy at a church retreat. He was the kindest, most gentle man ever. Okay? And, and every morning at the retreat, I'd see him wake up early and clean the worship room. Um, he would set up all the chairs by himself. He would just serve throughout the day, always with a smile. And I got to know him throughout the years. We became good friends. We started serving at retreats together. And um, for some reason, like years passed, and I realized I never knew what he did for a living. I never wanted to ask him because I'm like, oh, well, if he never talked about it, you know, maybe he doesn't want people to know what he does for a living. You know, I knew he was really good at magic, so I thought maybe he's like a part-time magician. But, you know, if, like, someone's a part-time magician, you don't want to ask them, are you a part-time magician? You know, it's kind of offensive. So I just, like, left it alone, you know, never asked him anything. Well, fast forward, like, 10 years. Uh, my mother-in-law has just been diagnosed with um, stage 4 lung cancer. And at the time, she'd just been moved to UPenn Hospital. And I was racking my brain. I was trying to figure out if I knew anyone at the hospital who could lend a hand or who could, you know, go check in on her. And one of my friends were like, well, have you talked to so-and-so? And I was like, the magician? You know? <laughs> I was like, I mean, what, what is he going to do, right? Um, and, and they were like, you know he's one of the leading pulmonologists on the East Coast, right? And I was like, dang, that is a big flex, right? <laughs> uh, you know, never mentioned it. And I remember asking him, I was like, why didn't you tell me? And he was like, I, it's not that big a deal. There's a kind of confidence and security 
that exudes when a person isn't playing the game. They're not, they're not even thinking on that level. God coming into the world as a baby in a manger in an obscure time, in an obscure town. At the same time, you have a king doing everything he can show, he can, he can to show people around him how powerful and important he is. That's God saying, I'm not even on your level. I'm not even playing that game. And it's not just the way Jesus was born. It's how he lived his entire life. He lived his life in relative obscurity. He walked around as a homeless nomad. He spent all his time with outcasts and people with zero social capital who couldn't offer anything of benefit to him. And on the day of his death, he wasn't buried in extravagance and pomp. He was hung on a cross as naked and vulnerable as the day he was born. Humiliated and rejected by all men, it was the kind of life Herod did everything in his power to avoid. And yet for all that Herod did to preserve his legacy, preserve his name, to try to guarantee that nobody would forget about him and people would remember him forever, isn't it funny that now in 2022, at this very moment, there are millions of people in the world who have gathered together not to worship or remember him, but to worship and remember Jesus. Isn't it ironic? And it begs the question, if we know that the way of Herod didn't pan out the way he expected it to or wanted it to, why then does it feel like our world is more shaped by Herod than it is by Jesus? We look around and we see tyrants everywhere. We see people lording power over others through lies, deception, and manipulation. We see policies being passed that continue to marginalize and oppress people. We see a political conversation right now driven purely by fear and insecurity driven by leaders not wanting to let go of control, people willing to do anything to maintain the status quo and protect themselves at all costs. People who see the world through the lens of scarcity, who see life as a zero-sum game that if you win, I lose, so I must win at all costs. This is what we're seeing. The way of Herod runs deep in the fabric of our country and in our city. We're in Los Angeles where people flock here from all over the world to do what? To make a name for themselves. To be admired and respected and remembered. So everywhere we turn, we see people fighting to be on top or fighting to stay on top. Fighting to project a certain image of themselves. Fighting to project their importance through what they wear, where they live, who they know, aligning themselves with the famous and powerful and discarding those who they see as a threat to their success and greatness, placing their kingdoms and their needs over the needs of others. And what's perhaps the saddest part about this is that this Herodian mindset has pervaded even the church, where you have pastors and leaders bullying people with their pulpits and platforms, who seem to be more interested in building their own empires than they are in actually embodying the way of Jesus. And really what it comes down to is this deep Herodian impulse that exists in all of us to want to be the king of our own hearts. It's an impulse that was built into us from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit. What they were proclaiming 
was they were saying, not your will, God, but my will be done. My way, my needs, my comfort, my preferences. And the great paradox of that moment was that in their attempt to become more powerful and more like God, they actually became less like him. They became afraid. They became insecure. They now had something to prove. What's the first thing they did after they took a bite of that fruit? They hid. They covered themselves. And so all of life became this feeble attempt to cover our shame, our fear, and our insecurity. We adopted the way of Herod. We adopted the way of self-preservation. A mindset of me first, my needs before yours. And it's everywhere. It pervades every part of who we are. There's a Herod that lives inside all of us. A Herod that at this moment is driving so many of our decisions. That's dictating our moods. That's dictating our emotions and holding us hostage. Well, I have some good news. And then some bad news. And then some good news again. Okay, I call this the sandwich method of delivering information. Okay, good news, bad news, good news again. Okay, first some good news. At times, when we see the Herods out there, and I know, even at this moment, you're thinking about specific people in your life, family members, coworkers, who they are, they are practicing the way of Herod. They are striking back. And sometimes it can feel crushing. Or maybe some of you are thinking about the Herod in here. Some of you are thinking about the ways, the things that you're holding on to selfishly. The ways that you've tried to self-preserve. The ways that you're filled often with rage and jealousy and envy and comparison. The way you often practice fear and domination in the spaces you inhabit. And sometimes when we think about those things, it can feel crushing. It can feel hopeless. It can feel dark. But the good news is that no matter how powerless the Herods out there or the Herod in here can make us feel, no Herod can ever thwart the plans of God. You see, the birth of Jesus is a far cry from the warm, fuzzy nativity scene we're used to associating with the Christmas story. The world of Matthew 2 is a dark, scary world ruled by the worst kind of tyrant who's so obsessed and so driven by his power and his need for control that he commits one of the most horrific acts committed by anyone in human history. He's so blinded by his rage and jealousy that he orders every boy under the age of two in the country to be murdered. Horrific. This is the kind of stuff fear makes us do. Start small. But it makes people do things that you never knew people were capable of doing. And so let's not fool ourselves into sugarcoating what the context surrounding Jesus' birth was. It wasn't hot cocoa, Christmas trees, and gifts. It was violence. It was hostility. It was the wailing of mothers and fathers. But listen to what it says in verses 13 to 15. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
you have a man being told that he has to take his family and flee the country for his life and theirs. And yet in the middle of it all, it's this subtle phrase, and so what was fulfilled what the Lord had said. In the middle of this fear and chaos and uncertainty, God was up to something. And he shows up in the middle of this horrible situation and he takes what the enemy meant for evil and he begins to turn it for good. It's who God has always been. You see, Matthew is making a very important connection between Jesus' birth and the entire story of Scripture. He's reminding his readers that the Israelites are not strangers to tyrants like Herod. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, there was another nervous king. There was another nervous ruler, desperate to hold on to power, who in his fear did what? Ordered all the babies to be thrown into the Nile. But God was there in the midst of it all, in the midst of the horror, leading his people out of Egypt. Well, here we are, centuries removed from that moment. It's the same story. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew saying the same God who rescued his people from slavery is the same God who has come to rescue humanity once and for all. Pharaoh couldn't thwart the plans of God. Herod couldn't thwart the plans of God. Our politicians in 2022 can't thwart the plans of God. Now begs the question, why did God even let those babies die? It's a legitimate question. Right? I mean, if God is in control and if he's, he's in the middle of it all, why even let the babies die in the first place? And to be honest, we don't get simple answers to those questions in Scripture. It's what makes Scripture wildly frustrating and upsetting at times. We don't get simple answers. But what we do get is the assurance that God is always there in the middle of the mess. He's always showing up. From the beginning, he's always been in solidarity with those who are suffering. You want to find God, you can find him in the darkest places. And not only that, he's always working all things, even the most horrible things, for good. And that should be such good news for us this Christmas season, especially those of us who find ourselves in places of grief and loneliness, and depression, and hopelessness, that even though you may not know why you have to endure what you're enduring, even though you may not know why your relationships are falling apart, why you lost your job, you can be assured that God is near and working in ways you could never see. That's the good news. Got to give you some bad news, though. As much as the news that Jesus, not Herod, is king should bring us great comfort and joy. It should also scare us a little bit. Because if indeed there is a Herod that lives inside all of us, then the birth of Jesus is not just a gift. It's a threat. He's a threat to our way of life. He's a threat to the kingdoms we've all tried to build for ourselves that we're still working to build. If Jesus is king, then every aspect of our lives belongs to him. Our marriage belongs to him. Our careers belong to him. Our finances belong to him. Our children belong to him. Our futures belong to him. If Jesus is king, he's going to have something to say about everything. He's going to have something to say about the grudge we've been holding on to and just won't let go of. He's going to have something to say about the way we treat people at work. 
He's going to have something to say about who we're sleeping with and what we're doing with our bodies and what we're doing with our money. If we proclaim that this king is indeed our king, what we're saying is that we're going to adopt his way of life as our way. But you know what his way looks like, right? And you're not going to want to hear this. It looks like a cross. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like suffering. It looks like death. To follow Jesus is to die to ourselves. What Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane was the great reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve looked at God and said, not your will, God, but ours be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, with tears in his eyes and blood dripping down from his head, said, not my will, but yours be done. If this is what you want, not my will, but yours be done. Um, as my kids get older, you know, I have a seven-year-old and an almost five-year-old, and as they grow up in an increasingly secular world that isn't just resistant to Christianity, but I would say is hostile to Christianity, um, I often stay up at night thinking about what my decision to become a pastor will mean for them. You don't think about these questions when they're really young and you have to change diapers and, and you know, they're not, you know, they still seem small and you feel like, oh, those are problems I can worry about later. But once they get into school and in the world that we're living in right now, the way people view churches and pastors, sometimes I wonder what my decision to follow Jesus and to follow his calling into vocational ministry will mean for them. I wonder what their friends will say when they find out that their dad is a pastor. I wonder if they'll resent me and Carol because they can't do things on Sunday morning that their friends do. If they can't sign up for Sunday morning sports and do recreational activities, I think about those things. And I know that at the end of the day, it's first world problems because Carol and I consider ourselves so blessed, but I do think about this all the time. And it's these moments I have to ask myself, is it your way or is it God's way? Are you going to be the king of your heart or are you going to follow me? And it's a question that I think this story forces every person in this room to have to grapple with. Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And those words should shake us up a little bit. It's the bad news that we can't just tack on Jesus to our lives. We can't just use Jesus when we need him to get to where we want to go. If he is king and if we want him to have a claim on everything, he's king over it all. He's king over everything. Okay, but don't worry, there's a, another piece of the bread, okay? Let me give you some good news now. Right after Jesus says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me, he adds this, for whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And he's saying, if you're willing to trust me, if you're willing to relinquish control and let me be the king of your heart, yes, it's going to hurt at times. There are going to be a lot of things you don't understand at times. 
You might have to swallow your pride at times. You might have to give some things up. But there is nothing in this life you will lack. You may be rejected by people, but nothing will separate you from my love. Your name may not be recorded and remembered in history books, but it will be recorded in the book of life. You may not live your life the way you scripted it, but you will have life abundantly because I came to give you life and life to the full. Paul puts it best in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. How do we trust God? We look at his love. You see, fear, we saw in Herod, makes people do some crazy things. Makes people do things that you did not think they were capable of doing. But there's one thing in the world that's more powerful than fear. There's one thing in the world that makes people do crazier things than what you thought they were capable of doing. And it's love. Perfect love casts out fear. It was for love that God left his throne in heaven and became a human being. It was love that led him to the cross to be a sinless sacrifice for our sins. And it's this incomprehensible love that holds us today. That frees us from having to be the king of our own hearts. You and I were never meant to carry the weight of the world on our own shoulders. And Jesus today is saying, lay your burdens down at my feet and let me be king. Let me love you and let me carry you. You know, many people want to erase Herod from the story of Jesus' birth because it makes the story really ugly and dark. But I'm going to argue that we have to keep Herod in Christmas for two reasons. One, we have to keep Herod in Christmas because we can only see the profound beauty of God's upside-down kingdom when we see what the alternative looks like. But two, and even more importantly, we have to keep Herod in Christmas because it reminds us of who we are apart from Christ. And it moves us to throw ourselves again upon his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. As we close, I just want to give us a couple moments to, to reflect Where do you see Herod show up in your own life and in your own heart? Where are you still trying to be king or queen over your own life? In what areas of your life are you allowing fear and insecurity to dictate your decisions, your emotions, your view of other people? Whatever those areas are, I want us to give us an opportunity to lay them down at Jesus' feet. To relinquish control. And to let go of the belief that it's our responsibility to sustain ourselves, to sustain our families, to take care of us. And instead to throw ourselves unto King Jesus to surrender and receive his grace that is sufficient for us.
Can we just take a moment to do that? Lord, it's exhausting to be Herod. It's exhausting to try to be the kings and queens of our own lives. And we're tired. We're weary from fighting and striving and doing and achieving and accomplishing, trying to build our own kingdoms. I pray this morning that we would receive and accept this invitation that you've given us to bring our burdens and lay them down at your feet. As you tell us in your word, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Lord, thank you for your love shown to us in the incarnation as you stepped into the middle of our mess to remind us that we don't have to be in control, but that you're with us and you're near, that you're king. And so, God, this morning, I pray that we would once again declare that you are king. That we would say to ourselves, not my will, but yours be done. And that we would throw ourselves again on your grace and mercy. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.